1: I'm all right, Tom.
2: How are you? Hey lucky to Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody
3: and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right.
0: Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program.
1: Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
5: Hi, this is Tom Sumner with an excerpt from my book, A Little Off the Top, written December 28, 2008, called Just a Second. The Beatles sang, You Say Goodbye, But I Say Hello in their aptly titled song, Hello, Goodbye. Groucho Marx sang Hello I Must Be Going in the movie Animal Crackers, and the rabbit in Alice in Wonderland doesn't have time to say hello because he's late for a very important date. A friend of mine, comedian Mark Banto recently reminded me of a device used in comedy to pause for reflection using non sequiturs after the punchline of a joke. *Monty Python often used this technique as segues. Someone would ring a bell for no particular reason and say, Good morning, or Hello. Mark's variation was to say, wait a minute or just a second, the latter is cosmically ironic this year. Without a doubt this has been a strange year in the news. Let's take a second to reflect. A black man is headed to the White House after beating a chick and an old white guy in a historic race for the presidency. Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich is being accused of trying to sell the Senate seat vacated by the newly elected president. An Iraqi reporter hurled his shoes one at a time at lame duck U.S. President George Bush. He ducked them both, like we didn't see that coming. Apparently this is a significant protest in the Middle East. We lodge protests here, there they lob them. The Republicans nominated a vice presidential candidate, Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, who looked just like Saturday Night Live writer-performer Tina Fey. A reporter sought Vice President Dick Cheney's response to the growing number of Americans opposed to the war in Iraq. The Veep's response was, so? Kwame Kilpatrick is no longer Detroit's mayor. He's now in prison for lying about an affair. Text message evidence brought about this chorus of Kwame a river. That's new technology. The old school politicians knew better than to write anything down. One hundred year old General Motors and its lending subsidiary, GMAC, have had to go to the federal government to borrow money. I want the job of calling them if they're ever late with their payments. OJ Simpson is finally going to jail, not for murder, for trying to steal back his own stuff. Sultry singer Eartha Kitt, best known for her sexy, albeit greedy, rendition of Santa Baby, ironically passed away on Christmas Day. And finally, a man dressed as Santa reportedly killed nine people and injured three more in an attempt to destroy his ex-wife and her family while they were celebrating the Christmas holiday in suburban Los Angeles. According to officials, the former aerospace worker used a jet fuel mixture in a device wrapped as a present to torch the house while he fired automatic weapons indiscriminately at fleeing guests. He killed himself after the device exploded and injured him. No one was hurt when his booby trap getaway car exploded. Officials described the divorce as a bitter split. The couple had no children, but the man's ex-wife was given custody of his dog. These are just ten randomly picked examples of how this has been a strange year. There are too many to list them all. Even the weather has been a little uh, strange. I suppose the fact that I'm writing this during a thunderstorm on the newly fallen snow just after Christmas in Michigan is worthy of some note. Fortunately, we have a second to reflect on these peculiar news highlights. That's right, 2008 will have an extra second. According to time experts, there have been 24 added seconds since 1972. That's when it was discovered that atomic clocks were getting out of sync with Earth's irregular rotations. Scientists say Earth's rotation is slowing down. They attribute this to tides, gravitational fluctuations, and melting polar ice caps. They didn't use the phrase global warming, but someone will. The adjustment will take place at 12:59:59 GMT or 6:59:59 EST in the US on New Year's Eve. The final second will tick twice to make the adjustment. I wish we could hold off until midnight in the U.S. so the ball in Times Square could take 11 seconds to fall. We could have an extra sip of champagne, a slightly longer kiss, or a moment to reflect. As it turns out, even the adjustment isn't exact. The extra second will mean that we start the year 2009 four tenths of a second ahead, until the Earth's slowing rotation catches up and gets behind. I could use more than a second just to contemplate that. Time really is relative, and despite the extra second, it never really stands still. It does seem like it, though. There is an old saying that a watched pot never boils. I don't know if that explains why the line I get in at the grocery store always ends up being the slowest one, nor does it explain why I always miss an exit or make a wrong turn while driving somewhere only when I'm already running late. Adding seconds doesn't stop Earth from slowing down, it just It just adjusts the relationship of how we measure time to the irregular rotations. It's an interesting metaphor for people who wonder why we can't just print more money to fix the slowing American economy. Slowing down is a natural thing with age. I feel it in my own life, so I'm not particularly concerned about Earth's slowing rotation. After all, Earth has been around a lot longer than I have, and it will be here long after I'm gone, give or take a few seconds.
1: Be forgot and never brought to mind All right, uh, Jackie, you take it here Should all, the ah. be and taste of all right, uh, Caroline, now you come in For get it together with bigger We'll, we'll take a
3: welcome back everybody this is the Tom Sumner program and my guest this hour is a poet writer medical oncologist and art collector Um, he has a new book of prose that's um, called one-legged mongoose secrets legacies and coming of age in 1950s New York his name is Mark Strauss he joins me by phone hi Mark Uh, welcome to the show
6: Thanks, Tom. Thanks very much.
3: Um, why, why set this um, in 1950s New York? Uh,
6: the book is narrated, the book takes place over just two years. It's a memoir of the years I was 10 to 12. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's narrated by the kid I was then. So the kid tells the story, and it begins right after his 10th birthday in 1953 and concludes after his 12th birthday.
3: Okay, now this is a question that a lot of people ask all the time. How do you get in touch with your inner child? (laughs) In in order to, you know, um, get back in that voice.
6: As a matter of fact, I had a lot of advice to write it in the present voice. And I'm, I'm a writer, and I utterly fail to try. Uh, I know too much. Uh, it gets editorialized quite easily. Uh, but then I had this prodigious memory. And when I'm thinking of an episode that happened then, and I can pull myself back in that time, it's just as if I'm there, I see everything, I hear everything, and now when I go back and read what I wrote, it's almost as if I didn't write it.
3: That's interesting, because there have been a couple of television programs that that use that that formula a little bit, where an adult is narrating about his childhood. Well, we've seen it in movies and, and television, but, um, wonder years comes to mind and that's right, coming, right. that's coming back again. Um, and then, um, the, the other one is, is a fairly recent, uh, television program, young Sheldon, where the older Sheldon reflects back to when he was younger. Um, Is is that a a pretty good storytelling device to, you know, start out sort of as, you know, grown-up Mark and and say, you know, I remember, and then, you know, we hear the harp and we all sort of go back in time?
6: I think it's actually pretty rare. Uh, This one is especially rare because the only thing we know in the book is what the kid tells us. There's no adult uh, saying now we're going back. Uh, and okay. I have, you know, I didn't, I didn't understand this memory I had in, until I was in first semester college, and I had not studied most of the semester, and all of a sudden I had to cram like hell, and realized what I could do in a very short period of time, and. That just stays with me so many years later. Uh, it's a bit surprising, and I'm sure for most of the periods of my life, I couldn't do this as well.
3: I, I, I have to ask Mark, and forgive me, I, I don't mean to be facetious, but where did the name One-Legged Mongoose come from?
6: Uh, One-Legged <laughs> Mongoose? <laughs> well, I actually think I lucked out. It's a good title because uh, after we did the book, somebody said, you know, there's no other title like that on the planet, and therefore if somebody Googles it, they're going to get your book, which is great. But it's a uh, title of a chapter that comes later in the book. And I'm in this new school that I was commuting to four hours a day, And uh, I got through the first year. I'm in the second year. It's nearing winter, and we live out in Long Island. And my mother tells me, "Uh, I'm going to go to this Boy Scout troop. And then in order to get this first badge, you have to go on a camping weekend. Uh, And I couldn't understand why I'd be going to the Boy Scouts, but off I went. And it was freezing. And we go out to this park out in Long Island, and after they pitched tents and were sitting around the campfire, the scout master tells all the boys, well, boys, we're really lucky we got here this year because the park's been closed for many years because a one-legged mongoose has roamed the park, half man, half mongoose, and it's killed people, but No one has seen a mongoose in six years, so we're probably safe. And (laughs) the kids were almost all peeing in their pants. And then, you know, I go off with one of the troop leaders, four of us, and he points down this trail and he says, you know, well, we're Boy Scouts. It's our job to see if we can find the one-legged mongoose. Who's willing to go down that trail and look? And I put my hand up, and off I went. So I went in search of the mongoose. So that's how we got the title of the book.
3: More about growing up in New York from poet-writer Mark Strauss, straight ahead.
6: Everybody's doing a brand-new dance now.
5: Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
4: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show.
3: More about growing up in New York from poet-writer Mark Strauss, straight ahead. Mark, how did you pick those two particular years as pivotal?
6: Um, it was uh, really unusual and traumatic, and also funny years. Uh, Just as I turned 10, I've been going to this atrocious public school in Long Island. And I really hated it, but, you know, that's all we knew. And then my dad tells me, uh, starting September, you're going to be going to a religious school in Queens and take your little brother And that meant we had to commute four hours a day. And it turned out to be a very religious school. And it made no sense to me. We weren't religious. And we're going to be entering a school that's very traditional. And they teach Talmud a half a day in Aramaic. It seemed like I was being dropped off into a foreign universe. So the book opens with me being forced to go to a Hebrew lesson so I could get into a school I don't want to go to. And, um,
3: you know, Mark, then, I thought then, Aramaic yeah. was a dead language.
6: Aramaic, uh, the, the Talmud is written in Aramaic, and it's 63 big volumes of law put together over hundreds of years, over 2,000 years ago, but it was written in Aramaic because it was written when Jews were exiled in Babylonia. And no one's changed it. It's still in the original Aramaic. So...
3: See, I was thinking when, of the Torah.
6: Oh, the Torah is in Hebrew.
3: Right, right. And, and that's why it, it struck me as funny that you would be studying anything in the Aramaic. But that makes sense.
6: Yeah, well, these kids that you see in these Hasidic neighborhoods, you know, who are studying most of the day and studying Talmud, this is what they study. And it's there. I didn't know Hebrew, and now I have to do Aramaic. <laughs> and, I, and I really entered a foreign universe. But uh, one of the things that sets the book apart is uh, my kid brother, Stephen, was a very frail little kid. And where we grew up in Long Island, he was a magnet for bullies. And they really picked on him relentlessly. And I would go out and find any kid who had done anything to him, and I'd beat him up. And the book opens up, where I've already become a veteran street fighter. Of course, my family doesn't know it. And I'm thinking, well, now we're going to go to Queens, a part of New York. It's just going to get worse. And um, whatever my expectations of the school were, of course, turned out to be very different.
3: What you know, I'm I'm looking at a cover of the book, and and it says "Secret Legacies and Coming of Age in 1950s New York." But then, uh, some press about about your book, Mark, says, uh, "Set in set in 1950s New York in the shadow of the execution of the Rosenbergs." Was that something you would have been aware of at that age?
6: I knew it really well, really, and really well. What happened was. My dad was an impoverished immigrant who came to New York. His mother died when he was three months old. He came here when he was 15, 16, and he just worked 16 hours a day. By the time this book opens, he's still a young man, but he has his own textile store on the Lower East Side in New York. And starting age five, uh, I worked there every Sunday, and I loved it. And it was, it was fantastic seeing my father in that place. And one of the almost comical things is he, he was a terrible driver. I mean, he'd drive in the middle of the lane, and, you know, he'd block people. But he'd always be yelling about politics when we were in the car, and he'd be yelling at the windshield, And I I would always say I learned a lot of politics from the windshield. (laughs) But the Rosenbergs were executed in 1953. And my dad was one of many people who really thought they were innocent. So this was, for him, an example of, you know, the horrible anti-Semitism. And after all, this was just eight years after the Holocaust. And where he left, the town that he had been in, every kid that he knew had been killed. So, you know, this post-Holocaust scene was very fresh at that time. And we watched the McCarthy hearings on a terrible black-and-white TV. So it was the time Eisenhower was president. The McCarthy hearings were horrific, and they were going on. But I knew all my dad's political opinions.
3: That's interesting about the uh, McCarthy hearings. My parents were working in Washington, D.C. with representatives from two different states, but they lived in the same apartment building. And they used to uh, take a a bag lunch and, and go to the committee room and watch those hearings on their lunch breaks while they were dating. Wow. Um, <laughs> so that whenever somebody mentions the McCarthy hearings, I, I always, even though there's no real connection to me at all, I feel a connection because of the stories that I've heard.
6: Well, I mean, here was a drunken junior senator who had the subcommittee and he used it as a forum to go after people for alleged communist ties. And. Mostly the people, of course, he went after was purely political show for him. But one of the horrible things, and we take this lesson now, so many years later, no one spoke out against him for a very long time. You know, not the Senate, not Eisenhower. He just, you know, so frightened everybody. Nobody wanted to be on the wrong side of this.
3: Well, I remember the impact it had on my grandmother. She lived in Kansas. And anybody that wronged her in any way, Mark, was a communist.
5: Yeah, <laughs> if, yeah.
3: If she went through, you know, a checkout line at the grocery store and got shortchanged 37 cents, it was a communist.
6: Well, you know, we realize that the U.S. entered World War II on the late side. But still, it was pivotal, and we lost an enormous number of people in that war. And I, most people think it was a war that we had to do. And then 1945, it's over, and we're occupying that area. But Russia's an enemy almost before we closed the door of that war. And, um, you know, it was, it was an odd time. And... You know, my father was so keenly political aware. I mean, the U.S. knowingly let in thousands of Nazis because they were more worried about the Russians by then.
3: Well, yeah, especially uh, the science people
6: Yeah, the, that they brought exactly. over, the
3: rocket researchers and so exactly, on. Exactly, exactly. Um, Mark, now, most of this book, well this book really looks at your life from age 10 to age 12 and you're talking about things like the Rosenbergs and the Holocaust were you aware of anti-semitism at that age or would you have thought of it just more as sort of I don't know anti-immigrant
6: it was uh, a central part of this book because um You know, by then my dad was making a little money from a store and he did what so many new people did when they're starting, when they enter middle class. He bought a little house in Long Island and it was quickly changing from farms and it was just booming. But then he went to work and we, the three kids, we went to school. There were very, very few Jews there then. And there was rampant rampant anti-Semitism. The kids, the parents, um, you know, I encountered it all the time. And the things that kids would say to us, even parents, you know, you'd think today would a parent really say that to another kid. It's incredible. But, you know, I knew all the kids in the neighborhood, and I even had a notion back then the kids wouldn't be this way if they didn't hear it at home. But nonetheless, some of this required me uh, beating them up. So, <laughs> so you know, you say certain things to me, you might as well know you're going to be in a fight.
3: Mark, you are such a New York kid.
6: <laughs> <laughs> but that's well, really that, kind of what this... That's the equalizer. S- that's the equalizer. I mean... I even believe that today. Um, you know, bullies are bullies, but most of them can stand up when they're challenged.
3: Yeah, I, I, there's, there's no shortage of violence, Mark, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of people standing up for anything.
6: But that's true. And, um, you know, one of the worst episodes in the book and we only hear about it later. I I really, um, you know, of all the many, many fistfights I had, one baffled me because I could never bring it back into sharp focus. Even back then, I couldn't really remember it well. And it was an Easter Sunday, and I was always watching out for my kid brother. And, you know, one day... Uh, He got clobbered by a baseball bat, and I wasn't there, and, you know, I wasn't there to protect him. And it was a kid who got riled up, and he came out, and he targeted my brother. I went after that kid, and it's almost a surrealistic moment. It, It You know, it was in my memory in threads. And I beat that kid so badly he wound up in the hospital.
3: really you know there's a there's, there's a line in uh, <laughs> the television program West Wing, which was always a favorite of mine, right and uh, the communications director, toby Ziegler. Um, gets into Who, a fight
6: yeah, he plays it he plays a jewish role
3: yeah and and he gets into a fight in in a bar out in california um the president and his staff are all out there stumping for a candidate and he ends up getting into a, a fight in this uh restaurant and then uh, after they return to the white house he's talking to a, another worker that wasn't on the trip and um the worker says something about the fight. And he goes, you heard about that back here? And he says, a Jewish guy won a bar fight. (laughs) They heard about it everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that was such a funny line. And and, and so it seems almost a little out of character for a, a New York Jew to talk about being a tough guy.
6: Well, I don't know. I fell into it. Uh, <laughs> y- y- you know, I I just got really good at it. And there are funny parts in the story, because I say, well, I once beat up the wrong kid, but getting hit once isn't that bad, is it? But, <laughs> uh, y- you know, later on in life, I encountered so many instances where there's this assumption that, you know, Jews Don't fight back. And, of course, it's not true. And some of it comes from the experience of the Holocaust, where a horrendous criticism of Jews, I mean, imagine these millions of people who died, but a criticism is, well, you didn't have to die if you would have fought back, you know, against that Nazi machine. But certainly, you know, already by 1953, there was the state of Israel for five years, and you know this little, nothing, teeny piece of land. In 1948, they had to go to war against all the Arab countries, and they won. And that began to change the mindset. And no matter what we think of Israel today, and everybody has an opinion, nobody doubts that they've learned to fight back and it's even important in the culture that we've erased that notion that one wouldn't fight back I remember once um, when I was a fellow at the National Cancer Institute and I was living near Washington DC I was 25 and I was in a karate class you know, now is taking karate shouldn't surprise anybody. It already had a black belt in judo, and this grown-up guy in the government said, "I don't understand why a Jew would take karate." <laughs> 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 I,
1: said,
6: I said, "Well, maybe, you know, you could ask that to Presbyterians, Baptists, Catholics. I mean, it's ridiculous." But even in college, I saw a lot of that.
3: Well, maybe maybe it has something to do with all that uh, Chinese food. <laughs> but but all all kidding aside, Mark, um, I, I, I want to ask you about a couple of things. I want to make sure you get a chance to plug the Mark Strauss Gallery in New York City. Oh,
6: that's good. Yeah, I'm going there shortly, even though we're closed at the moment. Um, I practiced cancer medicine almost 40 years and really fortunate I had a chance to spend a lot of my life doing that, something I'm really proud of. But it was an enormously difficult career, Uh, you know, just seeing so many patients with cancer for long, long hours. And after I decided I really wanted to retire, um, but I didn't quite totally retire. I decided to open an art gallery. So I opened Mark Strauss Gallery on the Lower East Side, right across the street from where my dad's store was. And I opened it 10 years ago. And um, I love it. We show contemporary art from all over the world. And we participate in art fairs everywhere. Two weeks ago, of all places, I was in Saudi Arabia in an art fair. We've been to India uh, every place. So it's a totally different kind of life. And uh, I started, my wife and I started collecting art when we were very young, had no money. And the only way I could get this art was find things that were brand new that nobody wanted yet. (laughs) Uh, scrape up some money to get
3: and try and and keep it long enough that it appreciated in value
6: well it has (laughs) that's great it really has you know it turned out uh, who would know it turned out we had a really great eye for picking them at the beginning and it's just uh, an enormous plus that so much of it is valuable
3: well Mark you've written poetry and um, stories that have appeared in a variety of uh, literary journals. Now you have this uh, this new book. It's, um, and I want to make sure and get get the title right because I don't want to. One-legged, One-Legged Mongoose. One-Legged Mongoose, Secrets, Legacies, and Coming of Age in 1950s New York by Mark Strauss. And I, I just wanted to ask you, now that you've, you know, talked about these adventures from ten to twelve year old Mark. Um, is there is there more to come? I, I, do you see yourself writing some more of this, or are you uh, too caught up with uh, with art and poetry?
6: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm caught up with everything, but.
3: I just I wonder mean, if there's going to be the further adventures of it, Mark it, Strauss. It, it, I think,
6: I think so. I think so. this first of all i'm I'm amazed the great great reception this book has had, and um, you know it's it's had phenomenal reviews it's it's being read. and it's a book that I think people are finding it's pretty universal. It's also a book about i had those two years were really tough and you know having the resilience to overcome some really difficult things but i i was hit by a car and almost killed those two years i was totally bedridden from polio so it was that kind of two years but um, i'm currently working on finishing up two novels But I do have a piece of a manuscript of a book uh, that begins my first day in high school. And um, I remember that day pretty much verbatim, and it was pretty funny. So probably more to come. It's a question of carving out time to do the writing I love to do.
3: Well, Mark, I I appreciate you spending this time with me and the listeners this morning to talk about uh, this book, uh, One-Legged Mongoose, and uh, your experiences growing up in uh, New York. But um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, Mark, do you have a website?
6: I do. uh, Mark, M-A-R-C. J. Strauss, S-T-R-A-U-S, dot com, and One-Legged Mongoose, uh, certainly any bookstore or Amazon. And the gallery is Mark Strauss, and that has a website. And um, I hope people will want to read the book, and I really hope they'll enjoy it.
3: Well, it sounds like fun, and you've been a lot of fun, Mark. I appreciate Thank it. You. Keep, keep up the good work.
6: Thank you, and have a good holiday and new year.
3: Appreciate it. Take care. Take care. Again, that was uh, former oncologist and uh, art collector, writer, poet who has uh, written a book of prose, as it's called One Legged Mongoose by Mark J. Strauss. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Up- mm-hmm.
1: Jackie, you take it here. Should all the plaintiffs be and taste of all All right, uh, Caroline, now you come in. For all lang syne, my dear. For all lang syne. Uh, now everybody take it uh, together with vigor. We'll, we'll t- ca- Yeah. Yeah.
2: Oh, the, Tom the Tom Sumner
4: Program
1: The Tom Sumner Program From the Tom Sumner
5: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Program.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on The Tom Sumner Program. The most frightening thing to me when I got married was that there would be one person who would know me better than anybody else. You know, you can fool a lot of people, but you can't fool your wife. There are dark corners of yourself you don't want anybody to know, but she gets to know them. She knows your good side and your bad side, you know. And especially when we're, you know, they say, Oh, it must be just marvelous being married to Bobby, so funny, you know. And she goes, Oh, yeah, he's just gang of laughs, gang of laughs to do this. <laughs> and when I'm having a fight with a wife, invariably they'll she Jenny, such a lovely girl. Say, she's terrific. She really, really is a wonderful girl. She really is. You know? Especially when you aren't talking to one another for four or five days. But... You can, fool your, you can fool your children, and you can fool your friends. You know, go out to a party and get smashed, and they'll say, uh, you know, and your wife will say, you were really smashed, and your friends will say, oh, I didn't realize Bob was drinking, you know, that. but you can't fool your wife. Now, this is a guy, gets up the next morning with a, he's been out, and he's got the daddy of all hangovers, see, and he comes down. Rob, Rob, don't, don't play with the dump truck. Just leave, leave the dump truck alone. <clears throat> don't, don't play with the verum toy. Just leave the verum toy alone. Daddy, Daddy doesn't feel well, Robert. Daddy has a cold, Robert. Another cold, yes, I know. I know Daddy had a cold last weekend. I just... Grown-ups get weekend coals, right? Just... You get a, a coal from, uh, well, from going from a warm place into a cold place or from a cold place into a warm place and from booze, yes, you can get it from booze. <laughs> who, who told you you can get a cold from booze? That's where mommy said daddy's coals come from. <laughs> have, have mommy come in with you. And don't slam the, the, the door. <clears throat> Hi, dear. Hi. No, I feel fine. I know, I know I was drinking last night. I feel, feel fine. Just sitting here watching, watching television. Picture tube's been out a week, huh? Thank God I thought I was going blind there for a while. Yes, yes, I know I have your dress on. Dear, you don't have to tell me. That's, that's, why, that's why the, the milkman uh, waved at me this morning. It didn't make a hell of a lot of sense at the time. What, what does Fred want for breakfast? Who the hell is Fred? My, my old army buddy. I insisted he stay with us last night. Honey, I, I was never in the army. How the hell could I ever... You have fixed something special for my old army buddy and myself, honey. Uh, would you call a cream chip beef on toast, please, honey? I thought I'd just—I thought I'd sit here, and then uh, maybe a couple hours. I thought I'd try to make it to that chair over there. And if that goes well, I thought I'd try to stand up tomorrow. Another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
5: Hi, this is Tom Sumner with an excerpt from my book Just Part It in the Middle from the Haircut Trilogy. This was written for New Year's Eve 2010 called Old Lang's Sign. Humorist Alan Sherman recorded several albums on which he changed the lyrics to popular songs to make them funny. Weird Al Yankovic does the same thing, but I think Sherman's are funnier. One of Sherman's songs tells of a man named Mr. Lang who had a neon sign. It continues, Mr. Lang was very old, so they called it Old Lang's Sign. It was sung to the tune of Old Lang's Sign, usually saved for midnight on New Year's Eve. The phrase Old Lang's Sign comes from a Scots poem by Robert Burns. Literally translated, it means old long since, but has come to mean for the sake of old times. It is sung traditionally in the U.S. on New Year's Eve as a way of eulogizing the past during our celebration of what lies ahead in the new year. It seems like every year people end the year by saying how awful the year has been. Then they hold out faint hope that the coming year will hold more joy and reward with less weight and or bad habits. And then there are the resolutions. The resolutions are, for the most part, little promises made to themselves to make it a better year through self-improvement. And every year there are less smokers, more joggers, and yet, somehow, less joy. As the new year approaches, I expect to hear many people talking about how bad 2010 has been. I am all for eulogizing the past year, but a little reticent about what lies ahead for 2011. The Rob Reiner movie Spinal Tap is a humorous documentary about a fictional band. In the movie, the guitar player is showing off his guitars and amplifiers for the camera. He is especially pleased by the fact that his amplifier goes to 11, while all other amps only go to 10. Obviously, he points out this is better because it has more power. The filmmaker asks what the difference is between his amplifier that goes to 11 and an amplifier that has more power but the dial only goes to 10. The guitar player's frustrated response was that his amp goes to 11. Using that logic, maybe 2011 will be better, but my celebrated optimism is all partied out from living in a world that is texting its way. To emotional oblivion. Three typed characters, LOL, have replaced actual laughing out loud. Very few of the things being called huge and awesome really are. There is very little being accomplished in the world today that leave me in awe or that I would consider huge. The historic passage of healthcare reform, referred to by Vice President Biden as a big and deal will seem tiny compared to the money time and effort that many wish to initiate to undo it. I have commented before on the frivolity of massive gains in information technology that put the miracle of communication in the hands of so many with so little to say. The real miracle of communication isn't the number of Facebook friends we can alert to what restaurant we walked into It is the lost art of listening and the lost joy of real laughter. I end this year and submit this final weekly blog with a profound sense of sadness and disappointment. Through my small efforts and the significant help and support of too many people to list, it has been a phenomenal year for the radio show. I am truly overwhelmed by the support and the caliber of guests the show has attracted, but that being said, it is becoming increasingly frustrating to me that the goals I set many years ago are no match for the power of robot radio. If I sound depressed, never fear, I am very proud of my many victories and accomplishments. I have humbled and honored by the uh, reputation the show enjoys with its guests and listeners. Yet it seems more and more like I'm chasing windmills, so in the spirit of optimism and self-improvement and hope that next year will actually go to 11, I offer a few of my own personal resolutions. I resolve to surround myself and people who know how to laugh, think, and listen, organize a rally of smokers to hold a smoke-in inside a government building site to be determined, Discontinue my weekly blog to concentrate more on editing, publishing, and marketing my writing as a book or books. This is also due in large part to the fact that I have tempor- temporarily run out of BS. I resolve to make a reasonable living for hosting and producing a radio show, or discontinue it in lieu of finding some less meaningful work. Go on a diet of chili dogs, Swedish meatballs, and breadsticks with Winshuler's cheese. Promote to the best of my ability that guns and gun violence are not cool, but not until after I find Waldo and shoot him. Cut way down on the number of things I refer to as huge or awesome. Since this will be my last weekly blog indefinitely, it's important for me to say how much I enjoy the comments that I get from people who take the time to read them. I wish you all a very happy new year. I'm not dying or anything, unless you've heard something I haven't. I'll be around doing stuff, it's just... I'm not exactly sure what it will be yet. In the meantime, let's drink a cup of a cup of kindness friends in the light of old lang's sign.
1: Jackie, you take it here. Should all the plaintiffs be for blood and taste of all life. All right, uh, Caroline, now you come in. For all lang syne, my dear, for all lang syne. Uh, now everybody take it uh, together with vigor.
5: Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.